Good morning. Good morning to our viewers online as well. Today we're continuing our message series, Tough Questions. So far uh, in this series, in week one, uh, we covered atheism. Week two, we talked about uh, the relationship between science and faith. Week three um, was how can a good God allow pain and suffering in the world? Uh, and last week was how can Jesus be the only way to God? So if you've missed any of those, uh, you can check those out online. This week's question, um, probably one of the hardest, uh, is if God is so loving, why would he send someone to hell? And what is hell? So C.S. Lewis uh, was talking about hell when he, when he wrote the following. He said, uh, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. Um, no one should like the idea of hell. Um, the thought of people we know who are outside of Christ spending an eternity in hell uh, should be absolutely heartbreaking. Um, hell is a difficult reality, um, but we can't have an appreciation of the gospel uh, unless we have some understanding uh, of what Jesus did for us on the cross, and that means having some understanding of hell. So a little introduction on hell. Um, first off, hell is what hell is because God is who God is. Let me unpack that. Um, people often talk about like seeing God as if seeing God face to face would be like this warm, fuzzy experience. Um, but the Bible explains that God's holiness and his perfection are so complete um, that if anyone were to see him, they would die. Um, when Moses asked to see God's glorious presence, um, God said, that he'd pass by Moses, um, but in Exodus 33:20 it says, "But you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live." Um, even the slightest sin in his presence uh, would lead to an immediate death. When the prophet Isaiah saw God on his throne, uh, he fell on his face. Um, he was terrified. He was sure that he was about to die. It says it in Isaiah 6, 5. Uh, then I said, it's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. So hell is what hell is because of the holiness of God and what it is. Um, Hell should make us stand in awe at the righteous and just holiness of God. Um, it should make us tremble before his majesty and his grandeur. The Christian belief in hell uh, has taken many forms over the centuries. Um, the earliest parts of the Old Testament, around 8 B.C., um, described the afterlife as Sheol, S-H-E-O-L, Sheol. Sheol is this shadowy, silent pit 
where the souls of all the dead lingered in a state of, of silent existence, um, forever outside the presence of God. By the 6th century BC, Sheol was looked at uh, as a temporary place where all the departed waited their, their bodily resurrection, um, and then they would be judged. Uh, the righteous would then dwell in the presence of, of God, and the wicked would then suffer in a fiery torment that came to be known as Gehenna. Gehenna originally was a valley that was southwest of Jerusalem, um, where children were burned as sacrifices to the Ammonite god, god Moloch. Um, the valley became the dumping ground for the, the sewage and the refuse in the city. It was a place of crawling worms and maggots. Um, it was a place where the, where the fires burned continuously, destroying the garbage. Beginning in the 4th century B.C., after the Greek king Alexander the Great, if you remember, remember your history, Alexander the Great, um, he conquered a lot. It's called the Hellenization, right, of Europe. Um, he also conquered Judea. And so elements of Greek culture began to influence Jewish religious thought. So by the time the Gospels were written, probably um, based on which one, between 40 and 69 A.D., uh, in addition to referencing Gehenna, uh, when he talked about hell, uh, we see Jesus also mentioning the Greek word Hades uh, in Matthew 16, 18. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So in the history of Christianity, uh, there have been some unbiblical views of hell as well. Um, some have believed that eventually all evil human beings and even Satan himself uh, will be restored to relationship with God. Um, others have held that hell is like this intermediate state where uh, some souls would be purified and others would be annihilated. But the primary dominant view that has been held since the time of Christ um, is the biblical view that we hold to today, and it is this. Hell is where the souls of the damned suffer torturous and unending punishment, eternally separated from the presence of God. Like, by the beginning of the 5th century, like, this is the doctrine uh, that was taught throughout Western Christianity. Um, it was reaffirmed officially by the councils, throughout the Middle Ages. Um, medieval theologians stressed that the worst of all torments would be this eternal separation from God. They called it the poena damni, the punishment of loss. So when you look at uh, throughout medieval literature on hell, uh, that punishment of loss is pictured um, as dark pits filled with flames, uh, terrible cries, gagging stench, uh, rivers of boiling water filled with serpents. One of my favorite art books uh, to look through, and I have a copy of this at home, 
uh, is Doré's illustrations of divine, uh, Dante's Divine Comedy. Um, Dante was an Italian poet in the 14th century, um, and in his Divine Comedy, um, he's accompanied by another poet, his name is Virgil, uh, on a journey to God. So on this journey to God, first they descend down into hell. Um, here's a description of hell from, from the Divine Comedy. Here the souls of the damned are punished with tortures matching, matching their sins. Gluttons lie in freezing pools of garbage while murderers thrash in a river of boiling blood. Then they travel uh, out of hell into purgatory and then they travel to heaven. Um, the poem is structured, of course, based on uh, medieval Catholic theology, right? Heaven, purgatory, uh, or hell, purgatory, heaven. Maybe not biblical, um, but certainly a fascinating interpretation of the typical uh, medieval understanding of hell. So it's interesting that Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else in scripture. Um, there are over 162 references in the New Testament alone uh, that warn of hell, and over 70 of those references were uttered by Jesus himself. Jesus spoke several times of hell as a real place. Uh, according to Matthew 25, hell was originally created for the devil and his angels. Um, but unfortunately, you know this, we all deserve hell as the just punishment for our rebellion against God. Um, Jesus was clear that in John 3, 3, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Um, he was also clear that hell is an eternal punishment. Uh, Matthew 25, 46 says, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And then 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9 says that in the end, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. John the Baptist said this about Jesus in uh, Matthew 3.12. He says, He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. Um, John 3.18, which I referenced last week, um, explains, I think, in the simplest terms, who will go to heaven and who will go to hell says, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. So those who go to hell are specifically those who do not believe in Jesus' name. John chapter 1 verses 10 through 12 uh, shows us both the problem and the solution. It says, Jesus came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, 
He gave the right to become children of God. So why can't God just forgive everyone and like just let anyone into heaven? Why does he insist that some people must go to hell? The Bible says that God is loving, like that's an understatement, he's all love, right? It also says that he will send some people to hell. So how can both things be true at the same time? For one, just because God is loving doesn't mean that he loves everything. Um, there are some things that God doesn't love. In fact, there are some things that God hates. Um, obviously, he doesn't love murder um, or abuse or selfishness or pride. Um, actually, if God is loving, then he has to hate those things, right? It wouldn't be very loving of God uh, to look at something like child abuse and say, that, that doesn't really bother me. So because this loving God hates bad things, he has to do something about it. And that's good news. Um, we all have this, like, like a kind of sense of justice. Um, so we have some understanding of this concept, right? The idea of the wrath of God and God sending people to hell, though, seems foreign to us. Um, but we have to understand that we, we can't um, pull apart God's love and God's judgment. Um, think of the anger that you feel when you hear of um, school shootings or uh, women being raped or people being beaten just because of the color of their skin. Right. Think of your anger at the idea of slavery, which still exists, by the way, um, or the Holocaust, or women and children being lured into sex trafficking. Right. When we really take a long look at that anger, we realize that its root is love. Right? And the more we love, the more easily our anger is kindled. Right? If, our, if our children are being threatened, we rush to defend them, right? Even at risk of being hurt or even killed ourselves. Why? Because we love them. I think all of us have felt that righteous anger like well up when someone we love is threatened, right? So imagine that feeling, that kind of love-motivated anger is so deeply entrenched in the heart of God that that intense feeling you felt, like that protective sensitivity to injustice, like to the weak being preyed upon or people you love being used or abused, 
Like that feeling is like a drop in the ocean compared to God's sense of protecting the weak and his sense of justice. It's like the difference between a child dressing up as a police officer for Halloween with a Supreme Court justice. Right? So try to imagine all of that wrath, that righteous anger, like God's anger at the Holocaust, God's anger at slavery, God's anger at abuse and murder and cruelty and neglect. And all that wrath poured out on Jesus on the cross. And as painful as, as painful as the crucifixion was, I think Jesus dreaded that wrath even more. So what does that have to do with hell? Well, to understand that, I think, I think we need to talk about who Jesus is in relationship to God and who he is in relationship to us. So first, according to the Bible, um, Jesus isn't a passive victim of God's wrath. He is God himself. Maybe you never thought about it this way. Uh, But on the cross, Jesus is both executioner and condemned. Um, People sometimes associate God the Father uh, with the Old Testament. Um, They see him as angry and vengeful. Um, And then God the Son, Jesus, they associate with the New Testament. Um, He preached love and mercy and forgiveness, right? But while God certainly um, acts in judgment in the Old Testament, he's also merciful and gracious, slow to anger, right? And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Um, He's like a loving husband, extending mercy after mercy to his unfaithful wife. Um, He's like a nursing mother clutching her infant. He's like a father lifting his child to his cheek. Those are references out of Exodus, Isaiah, and Hosea. On the flip side... While Jesus talks a lot about God's love and mercy, he also talks more about God's judgment than any Old Testament prophet, right? And Jesus is very clear on this. He's the one who will judge humanity. In the last book of the Bible, Jesus goes from being tender and vulnerable, right? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world to an image of terrifying judgment. Revelation describes a time coming uh, when people will say this to the mountains. It's Revelation 6, 16 and 17. And they cried to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to survive? The wrath of God is the wrath of the Lamb, Jesus. 
And just as Jesus is not separable from God, whose wrath he faces on the cross, right? So he is not separable from us if we put our trust in him. So the church, uh, the church is the body of Christ, of course, and that has implications for like what we should be doing and how we should like relate to one another. But an even more profound implication than that is this. If we trust in Jesus, we are as inseparable from him as our bodies are from our heads. As I'm speaking right now, my tongue and my jaw are moving. But they're not acting independently, right? So if you don't like what I'm saying... Um, you can't blame my tongue and my jaw alone. You have to blame me. Right? So just like that, Jesus isn't some random bystander who is hauled in to pay for our sin. If we put our faith and our trust in him, he is our head. Which means every evil of our hearts has been laid on him and paid for by his death. And every one of his beautiful acts of love is credited to our account. We've all rejected God and deserve his rejection in return. The choice we have is this, to face hell by ourselves or to hide ourselves in Christ. Here's something else to consider. We often act as if uh, we have complete free will, right? And every decision that we make is just completely, we're just completely autonomous, right? Uh, We behave as if we have complete control over every choice that we make. Um, But the Bible suggests that our wills are actually in a state of bondage. Um, Paul calls us dead in our sins until we are made alive in Christ, right? And corpses can't choose. So there is free will, but that free will uh, is either in bondage to sin or it's caught up in Christ. There's no other option. So we get a hint of this relationship uh, in pregnancy, So a child um, in his mother's womb is alive, even though his life is utterly contingent upon his mother's life. Um, He moves freely within the womb, but he doesn't control his location. Um, Where the mother goes, he goes. Likewise, uh, we are truly alive and free not independently from Jesus, but enfolded in him. Um, and just as a baby, like escaping from his mother's womb, like prematurely would just lead to death, right? Escaping from Christ would not lead to freedom in life. It would lead to death. Enclosed in his mother's womb, Uh, dependent on her blood, protected by her immunity, um, and housed in her love. Her child 
um, is in a very real sense one with her. If we trust in Jesus, uh, we're dependent on him like this as well. Where Jesus goes, we go. If he lives, we live. We die, he died our death and took our punishment. He is our resurrection. He is our life. So to, we tend to think of heaven and hell uh, too as primarily places to be sent. Um, some people imagine our destination depends on how we behave, right? If we've done enough good deeds, we can expect to go to heaven. Um, while bad people like Hitler or Osama bin Laden, like they're going to hell, right? But the Bible tells a different story. Um, heaven, in biblical terms, isn't just a place. Um, it also represents the full blessing of a relationship with God. It's the prodigal son coming home. It's the bride being embraced by her husband with tears of joy. It's the new heavens and the new earth where God's people with like upgraded, resurrected bodies will enjoy eternity with him. We will experience a level of intimacy um, which the best, most romantic marriage like pales in comparison to. Heaven is home. Heaven is everything made right. Hell is the opposite. It's the door shut in the face of the prodigal son. Um, it's the divorce certificate delivered in the midst of absolute remorse. It's the criminal receiving everything he deserves. If Jesus is the bread of life, loss of Jesus means starving. If Jesus is the light of the world, loss of Jesus means absolute total darkness. If Jesus is the good shepherd, then loss of Jesus means wandering alone, lost and unprotected. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, loss of Jesus is eternal death. And if Jesus is the Lamb of God, sacrifice for our sins, loss of Jesus means we have to pay that price ourselves. So there's a, uh, there's a Russian opera um, called Eugene Onegin by Tchaikovsky. Um, if I had remained an opera singer, I'm sure that would have been a role for me. Um, the opera is based on a Russian novel um, by the same name, Eugene Onegin, by Alexander Pushkin. So in the novel, uh, a jaded aristocrat, aristocrat um, Onegin, he meets like this innocent young girl on the countryside. The girl's name is Tatiana. She writes Onegin a letter offering him her love. Onegin uh, doesn't reply. When they meet again, he turns her down. Um, the letter was touching, but it wouldn't be long before he become bored with her. He's an aristocrat, right? She's just a simple country girl. So years later, uh, Onegin walks into a party 
in St. Petersburg, Russia, not Florida. Um, he walks into a party in St. Petersburg and he sees a stunningly beautiful woman. Um, of course, it's Tatiana, but now she's married. Um, and Onyegin falls in love with her. Um, he tries desperately to win her back, but Tatiana refuses him. At one time, that door was open. She offered him her love, and now it's shut. There's no going back. For a lot of people, it's easy to reject Jesus now. Um, his offer is touching. They think they'll be happier without like, making that kind of commitment. They think he'll like, cramp their style like limit their freedom, keep them from doing like all the fun things that they want to do. So they move on with their life and they leave Jesus behind. One day though, they will see Jesus in all of his glory. Um, their eyes will be painfully open to his majesty. They'll know in that moment that all their greatest treasures were nothing compared to him. And they will bitterly regret that decision. But it will be no more unfair than Tatiana rejecting Onyegin. If we accept Jesus now, we will live with him forever in a fullness of life that we can't even possibly imagine. If we reject him, he will one day reject us and we will be eternally devastated. The choice is ours. So back to uh, why did Jesus speak more about hell uh, than anyone else in the Bible? One reason uh, is that he, he wanted us to see what he was going to endure on the cross on our behalf. On the cross... Jesus' punishment was horrific, right? You've, you've heard, I'm sure, preachers unpack the horror of the crucifixion. Uh, this bloodied, disfigured man was hung on a cross that was probably recycled, right? So it was probably covered with the blood and the urine and the feces of other men who had died on it before. Hanging there in immense pain, he slowly suffocated to death. The worst part was a separation from the Father, right, that Jesus felt. A separation uh, that had to have been hell itself. Jesus cried out um, in Aramaic. He said, Eli, Eli, Labach, Sabani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In all this, Jesus was taking the hell of our own sin onto his own body. People uh, often feel like hell is like some blemish on God's love. Um, the Bible 
presents it as the opposite. Hell magnifies for us uh, the love of God by showing how far God went and how much he went through personally to save us. So in a sense, um, God doesn't send anyone to hell, in a sense. We send ourselves. Um, Hell is the culmination of telling God to get out. Um, You keep telling God to leave you alone, and finally he says, okay. That's why the Bible describes it as darkness. Um, God is light. His absence is darkness. Not just spiritually, like literally, naturally. On earth, we experience things like light, love, friendship, the beauty of creation, right? Music, art, laughter. Um, These all exist because of the light of God's presence. All of them. But when you tell God that you don't want him as your Lord, as the center of your life, um, eventually you get your wish. And unfortunately, when God goes, so do all his gifts. We have two options. Live with God or live without God. And if you say, I don't want God's authority, I would rather just live for myself, that's hell. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. In the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. So in another sense, uh, God does send people to hell. Uh, We may be tempted to rage against God, like to try to correct him, think it's unfair, right? But, but how can we find fault with God? Paul says in Romans 9, who are we as lumps of clay to answer back to the divine potter? Um, for one, we're not more merciful than God. Prophet Isaiah reminds us uh, in Isaiah 45, 24, all who are angry with him will come to him and be ashamed because they'll then realize just how perfect God's ways are. Every time God's compared with a human in Scripture, um, God is the more merciful. When we look back at our lives uh, across the span of eternity, we will be amazed, um, not so much by how severe God's justice is, but by how enormous his mercy is. LifeWay Research did a study in 2020 uh, with some interesting results. Um, Apparently, uh, 56% of Americans believe hell is a real place where certain people will be punished forever, 56%. Uh, This number was similar to a previous study they did in 2014. But the study also identified an increase in the number of Americans 
who agree with this statement. Um, Even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. In 2014, 18% agreed, but in 2020, that number rose to 26%. The third finding in the study I found fascinating uh, was regarding younger Americans. So Americans age 18 to 34, 29%, and 35 to 49, 32%, were more likely to agree than those aged 50 to 64, 21%, and 65 and older, 18%, that even the smallest sin deserves everlasting punishment. Specifically, uh, on the existence of hell, 60% of those under 50 say hell is a real place where certain people go to be punished forever, while only 51% of those 50 and over agree. Interesting. So why would younger Americans be more likely to believe in literal hell? I think it has a lot to do uh, with the large number of injustices that they've been exposed to, like primarily through social media. Um, A lot of leaders, famous people um, being incarcerated lately, not just due to moral failure, but due to sheer acts of evil. Um, Young people start asking questions like, how could it be just um, for this doctor, this Larry Nasser, the one who sexually abused hundreds of gymnasts to not suffer? Um, What about Jeffrey Epstein? Or uh, his wife, recently convicted Ghislaine Maxwell. Or Bill Cosby, remember him? All of them. Outright evil predators. How could it be that these people have the same eternal fate as the godly? Right? All of this, I think... Um, is creating a sensitivity to uh, injustice that makes it easier to accept this idea of of an eternal punishment. This sense uh, of injustice in our society, uh, it highlights the reality of God, the reality of sin, the reality of evil. And right now, we have a unique opportunity to talk to people about the true nature of hell and the gospel of Jesus Christ that offers an escape from that. Right? Jesus' answer to all this evil is not our answer. Um, we want to like prune back the branches of like the wicked trees in our world, like sex trafficking. But Jesus wants to like dig out the root. In this case, it'd be like lust and greed. We want to like legislate and like put boundaries on like violence and war and genocide. Jesus wants to eliminate the source. Anger, rage, pride. Jesus cares more about justice than we do. 
Um, Jesus cares so much about justice um, that it reveals one of the biggest misconceptions that we have about hell. Um, that hell is only for like those evil people, not ordinary sinners like you and me. Most people assume uh, that extremely evil people will go to hell. But the Bible teaches that only those who trust in Christ will go to heaven. The rest are bound for hell. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. So even though this message is on hell, even though the doctrine of hell is important for us to understand, um, hell is not the focus of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus bore the power of hell on himself on the cross, and now his question to us is not, are you good enough to get into my kingdom? His question instead is, will you let me heal you? Jesus has the power to break sin's hold on our life by his grace, through his spirit, right? Hell is, was never the point of scripture. Jesus is. Sin and hell are the backdrop. Jesus is the focus. We've offended God. We need forgiveness. We need a savior. And only Jesus can save. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you loved us so much that you allowed yourself to be tortured and killed, make it possible for us to be healed of our sin. Thank you that you loved us so much that you allowed yourself to be separated from the Father. You bore the wrath and the torment of hell so that we can be set free. Thank you, Lord, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray two things this morning. I pray that you would draw people in Fergus Falls and the surrounding areas who don't know the name of Jesus, who aren't following you, draw those people to Life Church and draw them to yourself. And secondly, Lord, I pray that Life Church would be a community of grace that just easily loves on those people that you're drawing and welcomes them home into the family of believers, Lord, the lost, the last, and the least. Lord, I know you have a special place in your heart for these people, the overlooked, the marginalized, the poor, homeless, addicts, convicts, the disabled, the elderly, those who think that if they walk into this church, it might burn up. They've committed so many sins. <laughs> Lord, we're all in the same boat. 
We are all sinners saved by the grace of God. Lord, I pray it would be hard for people in this community to go to hell because of the ministry and the testimony and the love of the people of Life Church. I pray that in Jesus' name.